Please stand for the hearing of God's word. So we got Job 42:10 through 17. And the Lord restored the fortunes of Job when he had prayed for his friends. And the Lord God gave Job twice as much as he had before. Then he came, then came to him all his brothers and sisters, and all who had known him before. This is his cousins, extended family, community. And they ate bread with him in his house, and they showed sympathy, and they comforted him for all the evil that the Lord God had brought upon him. Now, I'm not even going to spend time on that particular phrase, but we know, because we've read the story, that it was the evil one, the Satan, that brought the evil on Job. But isn't it fascinating that from another angle and from a more comforting angle, there's one who's greater, and from that perspective, he is the one that holds everything in his hands. Okay? So here we go. And the Lord brought upon him, and each of them gave him a piece of money and a ring of gold. And the Lord blessed the latter days of Job more than his beginning. And he had 14,000 sheep. That's double the 7,000 that were lost in the beginning. So everything's doubled now. 6,000 camels, 1,000 yoke of oxen, 1,000 female donkeys. He also has seven sons and three daughters. And he called the name of the first daughter. Now, if you really want to enter into some of my world, uh, you should see all the stuff that's written on the names of these three daughters and trying to find some deep symbolic meaning in their naming which there isn't. So have fun. The first daughter is Gemini, Gemini, and the second, Keziah, and the third, Corinthabach. And in all the land, there were no women so beautiful as Job's daughters. And their father gave them an inheritance among their brothers. And after this, Job lived 140 years and saw his sons and his son's sons four generations. And then Job died, an old man and full of days. Uh, this is the word of the Lord. Be Please be seated. Oh Lord, it is hard to believe that um, a year based on an academic year, fall to beginning of summer, has come to an end. Uh, and it's amazing. It's amazing what can happen in a year. So we um, lift our eyes and we lift our voices and we lift our hearts to the everlasting God. The God not bound, but the God that created time. And so God, we, um, we ask that you would uh, end this book rightly for us just as you began it rightly for us. So would you, because of the mighty acts of Jesus, and because of this day that we celebrate um, a week late of Pentecost, uh, that your spirit would unleash, actualize the kingdom of God, the presence of Jesus, the power of the gospel, even now. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, how does, 
Well, first of all, we just read it, right? Does this ending surprise you? Does it? Uh, do you like the ending? I mean, how does, it, how does it go for you to hear this ending? Well, I'm here to tell you that many scholars and most readers of Job do not like this ending. That they actually um, complain about the happy ending. Uh, they say uh, it's unrealistic. They say Job chapter 1 all the way to 42 verse 9. That's realistic. That accords with reality. That matches my world. But 9 or 10 through 17, what is that? That's not reality. In fact, these critics would say um, that real life is better mirrored or better represented in uh, a new uh, ABC program or channel that's set up for, quote, a new kind of family, that this would be more of what's in line with reality is the programming that airs on this particular channel. It would be stuff like uh, broken marriages are the new normal. That's reality. In fact, if there's a loving, lasting marriage, everyone's suspicious that there's some deep, dark, hidden scandal in there somewhere. Uh, children are the parents. And parents are the children. That's reality. Uh, sexual excitement and fulfillment is never found in marriage. It's always found outside of marriage in this reality. Uh, friends stab you in the back. They betray you. Parents hurt you deeply. You might not ever recover. Um, children are burdens to their parents to parents who are obsessed with success and obsessed with their reputation and obsessed with personal fulfillment and personal identity and financial security. Uh, also, on this particular channel, it's where the bad guys win. I mean, they get the girl, right? They uh, save the day. They get, the bad guy gets how life works. They're the wise one, right, in the story. Uh, and here's some other things I've noted where life has meaning and you have value if a boy finds you attractive, if you're good looking, if you get all your needs met by someone, uh, if you are successful and if you win. So Job's happy ending, folks, uh, is out of touch with reality. It's out of touch with real life. It's kind of like Job's ending is kind of like the third book in the Hunger Games trilogy, right? I don't know about you, and I'm not bitter, but I'm just saying, it seems like the author ran out of gas. It seems like she didn't know how to end this thing, and she gave an annoying ending, quite honestly, in my opinion, right? So the book of Job ends not well. The happy ending does not accord with reality. It's, it's not mirroring our daily lives. See, when we suffer and when we're uh, in pain, sometimes we avoid happy endings, don't we? I mean, we avoid happy endings all the time in our life. We avoid happy endings when we get bitter. We get bitter at God and we get bitter at others and we get bitter at ourselves. We're avoiding a happy ending. Bitterness is, is anger on steroids. It's like Bitterness is anger that never gets released. If, if anger were a soda can, bitterness is shaking it up and never 
popping the top, just letting the pressure build and build. It's like wine fermenting. Anger fermenting is bitterness. We also don't like happy endings when we, we start indulging in self-pity. We start playing the victim. See, we like attention. So we'll take positive attention and we'll take negative attention. And self-pity is just negative attention. It's a strange way of feeling good about yourself when things don't go well. Isn't that crazy? We actually feel good about ourselves. For instance, if someone, um, doesn't, if someone mistreats us, either in reality or we imagine it, we start feeling good about ourselves and we start thinking, poor me. But this person's the one that blew it. They're at fault. I would never do that. I'm superior. I'm better. Self-pity has a way of, of avoiding uh, having to look at ourselves and anything that's not right with ourselves. So we avoid happy endings by self-pity. We avoid happy endings by becoming bitter. And then here's the real, here's one that you might find yourself in. Sometimes when desires go unmet or even damaged for an extended period of time, we avoid happy endings by no longer wanting to hope anymore. You know what I mean? In other words, it's better to stuff your desires and your hope and kill them. Don't let yourself hope. Don't let yourself desire. Kill all desire. Stuff all hope because you don't want to let it out because if you let it out, you're only going to get disappointed again. You're only going to have your hopes dashed again. You're going to have this desire and it's not going to get met or someone's going to hurt it, so you hurt. So why? Why do that? Why put yourself through that, right? So when we suffer and when we're in pain, we tend to avoid happy endings. We don't like to believe in them. We really don't like the ending of Job, if we're honest. We don't think it's true. And we don't believe it matches or mirrors reality, real life. We would rather go to ABC's New Kind of Family and sit there. So why the happy ending in Job, folks? Why does it end this way? What's the point of Job's happy ending? So what I'm going to do, I'm going to be the great teacher. I'm going to give you the point now. So we have the point. Now you might believe it, you might not believe it, but I'm going to give it to you so we have it here. And our goal is to have this point no longer become just a beautiful idea, but actually become real. Okay, that's our goal. So I'm going to give you the point, and the goal is it doesn't just become a beautiful idea. It actualizes reality for you. Okay, here's the point. Real life is a party at the end of your pain. If I was to theologicalize it, theologize it's probably the better word. But who's checking my words? <clears throat> yeah, you can cough. Real life is a resurrection from the dead. You want to know what real life is? You want to know what reality is? It's a resurrection from the dead. 
the ultimate, singular, intruding reality in our existing reality is that there is always a party at the end of your pain. Always. Oh man, this is a great story, isn't it? Don't you wish you believed it? All right, verse 10. And the Lord restored the fortunes of Job. God gave Job twice as much as he had before. So God raised Job from the loss of everything he had. That's what's taking place in verse 10. Do you see that? He raises Job from the loss of everything he had. Now, it's not just a restoration of what he had. The translation, unfortunately, is not the best in the ESV or the NIV. The literal translation goes like this. And Job, or in the Lord, turned the captivity of Job. That's the literal translation in the Hebrew. God turned the captivity of Job. So here's the the word captivity to an Israelite reader who is the original reader of this story. The oldest book in the Bible. That word captivity is loaded. Exile. Outcast. Darkness. Doom. Bondage, slavery, death. And God turned Job's captivity into promised land. And Job's restoration is way beyond what he had before. Don't think that it's just a, oh, I'm going to give you back what you had. Some folks, and maybe I'm making a big theological leap here. But if you think that the goal of Christianity is to get you back to the way things were with Adam and Eve, you missed the show. The original garden wasn't the end game. There was something bigger and better and ultra and supra and above and beyond waiting them. Creation was unfinished business. So it's not getting back to that time before sin. It was actually creation when sin wasn't there was going forward to something bigger and better. So here we have twice or double what he had before. Double the wealth, double the land, double the sheep, camels, yoke of oxen, female donkeys, double the children. The assumption here is that his other children are not dead. They're still living, though they're not on earth present at the time. That they're existing somewhere else. That's the assumption. Uh, Double the lifespan. I mean, 140 years, so Job was probably, everybody thinks he was probably 70 years when the account was taking place. And then his lifespan was doubled to 140 years beyond that. Uh, He had double the honor, double the fame, double the success, double the treasures, double the wealth, uh, double the friendships, double the community, double the relationships. This is the wealth of a king. But notice, too, that this description here, that the raised state of Job is beyond normal categories. It's ultra. It's supra. Did you pick up on where that comes from? Where do you see that in the text? Its normal categories are obliterated, completely obliterated. How? Because the sons are not singled out and named. 
the daughters are. The sons, the boys' exceptional qualities are not singled out and elevated and honored. The daughters are. Their beauty, exceptional, unprecedented, unlike anyone in all the ancient Near East. And on top of this, the daughters received an inheritance along with the boys. This, folks, is completely blowing every ancient Near Eastern category, traditional culture category there is. Let's put it this way. If Job was alive today, federal headship folks would be blogging the daylights out of him and writing hate mail all day. So this is above and beyond. This is very interesting, if you ask me. Verse 11, then came to him all his brothers and sisters and all who had known him before, and they ate bread with him in his house, and they showed him sympathy, comforted him all the evil that the Lord had brought on him, and each of them gave him a piece of money and a ring of gold. The first item on the agenda of restoration is a celebration. The first item at the end of Job's pain is a party. According to the book of Job, and this is the most recognized, go-to, suffering, pain book in all the world for who knows how many thousands of years, this is the most recognized, the most widely accessed, accessed book for those who suffer and are pain ever. And according to this book, Real life is ultimately a party. It's ultimately everything in life is moving forward and toward and onward to a celebration of the grace of God. The sheer delight and thrill and wonder of unmerited, unperformed, unworked favor, friendship, blessing, goodness, gifts from God. At this cosmic party, the wine will flow and gladden the heart. If you have a problem with that, talk to the psalmist and talk to the Apostle John, because that's what they say. Food will fill you and thrill you. Be the best food you ever ate. Family and friends will comfort you. Did you see that? He's finally comforted. He finally gets the sympathy he's been longing and craving and starving for. He finally gets community. Family and friends will fight each other to outdo each other in serving and honoring and loving each other. Boy, how would you like to have those kind of family fights? No, no, no. I'm going to serve you more than you serve me. No, no, no. Really, Paul, I'm going to honor you more than you honor me. There will be treasures and wealth and beauty and glory and honor and inheritance that's beyond words and it's beyond imagining. 
beyond it. It's beyond anything Bill Gates can accomplish. And whoever owns one of those incredible islands down in the Caribbean all by themselves with their own little mansion, this can't touch that. So, for instance, if you never go to Hawaii, if you never get a chance to see Switzerland, you never get to go to the cathedrals and the realities of Rome, if you never get to go to these places, no big deal. Just wait. If you struggle financially and all you're able to, to do is give $200 a month to the Lord and his work and to God's people and to helping and serving and honoring others and for the gospel advancement, no big deal. Just wait. If you never have the kind of marriage or friendships or relationship with your kids or community that you long for and crave, no big deal. Just wait. If your life is cut short and you don't get to marry and you don't get to have children and you don't get to accomplish much and you don't get to leave behind a growing family, no big deal. Just wait. Life, real life, is a party at the end of your pain. It's a resurrection from the dead. So what should this do to us? I mean, where should life, real life, is a party at the end of your pain? What should that do to us? I mean, how should that affect us? How does that move beyond a beautiful idea? And if it really embodied itself in your life, what would it do to you? Here's some of the things I've written down. Here's some things I think about. You were made for a happy ending, so stop trying to deny it. Stop trying to suppress it. Stop trying to stuff it. Embrace it. Run for it. Give yourself to it. Work for it. So really, all of us should be half-full people. And when you find yourself in that half-empty, critical, bemoaning state, that should be a wake-up call for you. That's not the state of where everything is going. All right? So this means when you are struggling, pray your pain. This means when you are struggling, ask God to work in your life. This means when you are struggling, ask God to reveal to you, you. Ask him to teach you who you are and what's going on with you. Ask him to identify the smoke or the emotional structures that are giving you so much pain. But get beyond the smoke and find out where the fire source is. Ask him to teach you who you are. Ask him to do that. Ask him by his spirit to make the person and work of Jesus clear to your mind and real to your heart. Ask him. Seek him. To do this in your life. You are made for a happy ending. Also, this means to work for happy endings in your relationships that are hard. Forgive them. Seek forgiveness. Reconcile. 
Do the hard work of seeking to understand someone and be understood by them. Do the hard relational work that's necessary for community. Do it. Don't run from it. Don't hide from it. Don't fear it. This also means work hard in your marriage. Be the first one to repent in your marriage. Stop waiting for your spouse to be the first one to repent in marriage. You know, you're both in there. There was a little conflict or whatever. And you're like, I'm not going to, I'm not, no. Not until she comes to me, I'm going to go cut the grass. That's what I do. (laughs) Go cut the grass, honey. Yeah. (laughs) No, you be the first one to repent. You be the first one to get up and go in there and say, I'm sorry. You do it. Um, and this is for uh, also love your spouse in action. In other words, I hear a lot. I hear a lot that, you know, I just don't, I just don't have those loving feelings for my husband or my spouse anymore. And hear me. When I'm in my right mind, sometimes I just want to say, or when I'm not in my right mind, I just want to say, yeah, so what? Do you think I have loving feelings for my wife 24-7? You bring any married couple in here, and after a year, if they tell you that they've never had unloving and have lost that loving feeling, they're lying. Yes. So what are you going to do? Well, you need to realize love is two things. Yes, love is involuntary passion. You should have passionate feelings. That's part of it. But love is also an action. And an action of sacrificially seeking and serving and exalting the other person. And guess what? When you do the action, you flame the passion. If you just wait for some impartation of feeling, you're going to wait all day. And then you're going to go to someone else and you're going to get it from them for a year. And then you're going to lose it with them and you're just going to, you're going to be a serial relational person. Just moving on to the next. If you're committed to only love being an involuntary emotion, it is a voluntary action too. You can't separate those realities. But if you were to pride, God has them both. There's no, there's no conflict with God towards you. There's no conflict in his love. It is passionate. It is involuntary. It's who he is and it's moving towards you. But it also, God demonstrates his own love toward us in this while we are yet sinners Christ died for us. Action. Right? We're the ones that are inconsistent. But when you find the passion not being there, go with the action. You'll get the passion. Someone brought the C.S. Lewis brought out the opposite. He says, if you have involuntary hatred towards someone, and he used the illustrations of the Nazis toward the Jews... When you do hateful actions, you fuel and fire hatred. So if you want to keep your emotions and your passions in bitterness, you just keep acting like a bitter person. You keep acting like a selfish person. Don't repent. Okay? All right, the other thing here is this, and we're going to be moving into this in the fall, but I need to say it now. Husbands, and I'm not even going to talk to the wives because I'm a husband. I'm still trying to figure out wives. Um, Husbands, stop hiding your sin of control and your sin of dominance 
and your sin of entitlement and your sin of selfishness under biblical headship and biblical leadership. Biblical authority is a sacrificial authority, servant leadership, never controlling, never dominant, never selfish, never entitled. The image of leadership in the Bible is the cross, not Henry VIII. Not Little House on the Prairie. And not Victorian ideas of the family. Yeah. You can send your emails. I will welcome them. (laughs) Giving yourself. Give yourself to a happy ending as well. Also means being a leader or an influencer of happy endings wherever you are. In other words, you should see yourself as someone... I am an influencer and I am a leader of happy endings. When I walk into a situation, I am seeking happy endings. In the church, in my home, in my relationships, in my career, at my job, where no one else will go in bad situations, you be a bearer of happy endings. Okay? What else do I have here? All right, what else? What else? Work for happy endings, but since pain and suffering are a big deal, we've got to look at that. I mean, if, if real life is a party at the end of your pain, how does this apply amidst suffering and pain? Here's the answer. Remember that your pain is sanctified, which simply means remember that God has infused your pain with his love and his power not his punishment. For the Christian, pain and suffering is always redemptive, never punitive, never punishing, never despairing. So if you are in pain and you are suffering, you can know that it is infused with his love and his power, not punishment. Uh, I did this with all my kids when they were little. Now with Ty, it's all fresh again. So I probably said this when I was father first time around. And now it's fresh father second time around. Uh, Mondays, you will find Ty and I, the two of us, at either the zoo or Barnes and Noble or riding the four-wheeler or wrestling or fighting. Fighting is a good word in our house. It's not a bad word. Um playing superheroes, going for walks, or going to Cameron Park thanks to the Russell Boys. And while we do these things, it's very ordinary and it's so common now, we don't even notice, but often we're holding hands. It just happens. But every once in a while, I can't help it. Every once in a while, while I'm holding that little guy's hands, I pick him up. I turn him around and I say, look me in the eyes. Daddy loves you. Tiger. And I put him back down. God always holds your hand. He never lets it go. But every once in a while, he picks you up. 
He spins you around. He makes you look him in the eyes. And he tells you very personally, I love you. Pain and suffering are one of those pick-you-up kind of moments. Is pain and suffering mysterious? In other words, you're going to know all the reasons why you are suffering or in pain. Of course it's mysterious. We've already established that in Job. I hope I can say things and assume things and not have to say everything at the end because we've already covered this stuff. Uh, Are there bad things as pain and evil and wickedness and suffering come to you? Are they bad and evil and wicked in and of themselves? Of course they are. Of course they are. God detests them. He hates them. But is he greater than them? Oh, you bet. So great, he says, he'll take every bad thing and make it good for his children. He sanctified it. All right. So why is there an ultimate happy ending? Why are there many, many happy endings in your life? Why would you ever be someone who is working towards happy endings in your life? Why would that happen? Why are movies and literature and, oh, I don't know, the arts and politics, why does everyone have this sense of there is a happy ending? Why can you not escape the ache of happy endings in you and in our culture and everywhere, no matter what ABC tries to do with a new kind of family? You're at least if you're arguing against a happy ending, you acknowledge that it's there. Why is all that happening? Is a happy ending just a, a, a beautiful idea? A great idea? Or is it reality itself? Why? Look at verse 10. And the Lord restored the fortunes of Job when he had prayed for his friends. Did you catch that? When did the Lord restore the fortunes of Job? When he prayed for his friends. The Lord is connecting Job's restoration, Job's resurrection, to saving his stupid friends. Don't go run down salvation by works, please. If you don't read your Bible with Jesus in the center, you're going to miss this. But if you do, you're going to love this. God is connecting Job's restoration, his happy ending, his resurrection, to his intercession on behalf of his lousy friends. In other words, Job's priestly work, which in verse 8 was offering sacrifices for their guilt, sacrifices for their sin. That is connected to his resurrection and his exaltation. When Job saved his stupid friends, God restored him all his losses. There it is. In the oldest book in the Bible, the template of the gospel, the shadow of all substances, the skeleton of the superhero, 
The Apostle Paul puts it this way. Though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Therefore, God exalted him. Therefore, God raised him from the dead and sat him at the right hand of the throne of God so that every knee will bow. When the better Job saved his stupid friends, God raised him from the dead and exalted him, king of kings. Lord of Lords. This is why there's an ultimate happy ending. The better Job saved his stupid friends from their sin. The better Job saves his stupid friends from their lostness, from their selfishness, from their misuse of relationships, from being bad friends, from their own guilt. Uh, This better Job interceded with his own life on the cross to do it. This better Job did the priestly work, the atoning work for sin, and the obedient work of righteousness for his lousy friends. This is why there are many, 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 many in this life, many happy endings. This is why you can work tirelessly empoweredly towards happy endings no matter where you are. So real life is a party at the end of pain. Real life is a resurrection from the dead because the better Job saved his stupid friends by his life, his death, his resurrection, and his exaltation. Amen.